Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla 76 where we help B2B manufacturers grow through revenue-focused marketing programs. Over the past few years, we've all seen and experienced the effects of rising labor costs and rising material costs. But as my guest today will tell you, alongside these challenges, productivity in U.S. manufacturing is at its lowest point in 75 years. Put all of this together, and the recipe for profitability becomes a pretty challenging one to make. This episode is all about productivity and why it needs to be a core area of focus as we look ahead to the future of American manufacturing. John Aplinalp has spent more than 35 years in manufacturing. He's an experienced, respected industry leader and innovator who has learned from the bottom up. John began as an assembly mechanic responsible for the setup and maintenance of the aerosol valve assembly lines most recently serving as CEO and president of Precision Valve Corporation from 2003 to 2013 and chairman of the board from 2013 to 2015. John's broad expertise and experience in strategic planning, management, OEE, operational improvement, plant facilities, layout and design, and international business provides an extensive knowledge base to assist clients in overcoming their challenges. John has been married to his wife, Tanina, for 24 years. They have two children. John, welcome to the show. Joe, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so very much. Absolutely. It's it's great to have you, John. And um, I know you, you told me the entrepreneurial story of your father recently and sort of your family's background there and how it led you to where you are today. And I'd love to hear you kick things off by maybe sharing some of that with our audience. Joe, I'd be delighted to talk about my father and his accomplishments. And it's, it, it, as a matter of fact, I'm sitting in my office right now with a with a copy of his patent that he received on St. Patrick's Day, 1949, which I'm sure was quite a celebration for him on top of what, what that day normally brings. It was the original patent or the, the, the patent for the original aerosol valve. Dad used to, he had a, he had a machine shop in the Bronx. And a gentleman came in. He had he did have two other partners originally. Gentleman came in and asked them if he could improve on the World War II bug bomb, which was a pressurized container that had a screw down top with a piercing mechanism at the top of it. That as you screwed the top down, there was a thin brass plate. It would pierce it, and the contents would be evacuated. But you couldn't stop it. You know, once once the piercing happened, it continued. So Dad came up with an idea. The seven components of the, the aerosol valve, some of them plastic, some of them metal. And from that, he started the Precision Valve Corporation. And we ended up in about 22 countries worldwide uh, at the time of his passing, about $250 million in sales. All the, all the major fast-moving consumer good companies, SC Johnson, Unilever, uh, Reckitt Ben Kieser, and a lot of the, the big suppliers, the DuPonts, the Union Carbides, Tiss and Steel. That we, we, we have big suppliers and big customers at the end of it. We learned how to form metal, 
uh, injection mold plastic, high tolerance, high speed, high volume, and uh, high speed assemble. So from that, and, and a degree in engineering and a degree in finance, you know, as much as you kind of pat yourself on the back about those, I was not outstanding in school at all. It was really just kind of walking through the plant, seeing what's going on, talking to people, understanding processes. And it got me to where I am right now. But it was, uh, Dad, that really was a hell of an accomplishment uh, on, on his part, actually, you know, started an industry. That's pretty cool. It's uh, it's so interesting that you know these things we use in our lives all the time, and you know you kind of don't even really think about where that came from or where you know what problem was being solved originally when that thing first came to market. And there you are with something that you know many of us use very very regularly that came right from your your dad, which is very cool. You have a beard. I have a beard. We don't use shaving cream that often, but I, other I have a little bit of a beard, but I you know we let it grow out. But I'm sure there's others we use. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, very cool. Well, John, you know, I know one of your areas of passion that we spoke about quite a bit when we were sort of prepping for this conversation is productivity and something you talk about quite a bit. You were telling me recently about how years back when so much domestic manufacturing in the US started to move to China and across seas in general, everybody was chasing cheap labor. And when that happened, there sort of was a almost a productivity became less of of a, something people were focused on, and and now you've got this growing reshoring movement happening, you know, over the past few years, especially in light of supply chain issues going on and and everything. You're also watching labor come back to very inefficient environments from a productivity standpoint. So, I'd love to hear your take on all that, and have you just sort of unpack that topic a bit for us? The most recent productivity report came out, I guess it was for the first quarter of 2023, and it just, it came out the beginning of May, uh, was a a 0.9% drop in the rate of productivity. And that means the amount of units produced in whatever the general collective sense is dropped over that period of time, while labor costs have continued to rise, and I'm sure raw materials have continued to rise. And as you go through that, all you can think about is it's it's a decreasing profit margin. Makes it difficult, obviously, for companies to come back, invest, or whatever, to be able to thrive going forward. And in fact, as I understood it, I did not read this in the articles, the information I was getting, but watching it on Charles Payne on, on Fox News, but the rate of productivity improvement now is at its lowest point in the last 75 years. Right after World War II, not that I was around, but what from what I read and understand, there's three things that really brought the U.S. back on the map and on the top. We had a growing population creating demand. We had a population that was getting older. So the various products, a little bit of the innovation side of it on that side, uh, new things were being brought to fore that we could we could bring the rest of the world. But also productivity was improving. Yes, one might argue our population through various means of immigration or not might be might be getting larger, but we're not getting we're not we're certainly not getting any younger. We're getting older and us boomers are starting to age out. The only thing we have left is the productivity side. And as I understand it and I believe in, well, two things. One is a great quote by a gentleman named William E. Simon, who was a Treasury Secretary under General uh, Gerald Ford and the energies are under uh, Richard Nixon. 
But as Treasury Secretary, his comment was that productivity and the growth of productivity should be the first two economic consideration at all times. It is, to, it is through those two things that innovation, jobs, and wealth are created. And it would make sense in the context if you can get more and more consistent output for, for less units of input, your gross margin is going to improve. If you do it the way we're talking about, and we'll get into it in a little bit, where you're not just throwing new equipment at everything to increase capacity, but you're also taking existing capacity and getting the obstacles to further productivity out, qualitative issues, downtime issues, material loss issues. That way you start going after those, your consistency, your quality starts improving. Your lead time is reduced, your on-time delivery is better, and your competitive position is enhanced. This is, uh, to me, a much more holistic approach to going after productivity than going out and improve and, and profitability, I might add, and value creation, instead of just going out and chasing cheap labor or consolidating operations and pulling labor out. You'll reduce the costs, but that competitive position enhancement doesn't exist in that case. So the value creation is not as great. John, I realize that every company's individual case is unique, but can you talk about some of the areas where you commonly see productivity problems that need to be addressed? The greatest area where you know the opportunity is ripe for or rife for productivity improvement really comes from the dynamics in the C-suites. And, and that is when you can see that the, the, the corner offices seem to be more engaged in balance sheets and income statements, in a lot of cases, let's be fair, if there's any of the greatest generation that are still left, God bless them, running businesses that are created, or us early baby boomers, or even the end of the baby boomers, you know, as we're going through it, we might be taking the eye off the ball a little. I mean, we've got the other house, we've got, you know, you, we've, got the, we've got the boat, we've got the other place. Uh, we might not be driving the operation as we did before. And usually, you know, the corner office is trying to make decisions based on that financial type information when they don't realize the operational equipment improvements, material loss gains, et cetera. And there's usually thousands of these issues that are going on inside a plant, but it's trying to figure out how to herd them up and bring them to the right people so they can be addressed. And those right people, as I mentioned, usually is some management with the guys on the floor that are working around. So you can usually tell when you get into a plant, yes, it's more of a manufacturing type issue is where I base it on. But it can happen in service industries also. But it's easy to go back in and tell. You can see how the floor looks. You can see what the machines are doing, et cetera. And I am not talking about, certainly not talking about jumping into high automation or AI or you know, the robotics with it, that will all come. But if you're competitive in your market now and you can start going back and getting these other gains and increase your daily outputs without throwing capital at it by getting the obstacles out of the way and not going through the default of, oh, we need a new piece of equipment to expand capacity. You've got the latent capacity if you understand what your OEE is, Operating equipment effectiveness. Go from 50 to 60% OE, that's a 20% improvement in productivity. And you haven't spent anything on any new equipment. And the reduction of labor hours, et cetera, that go, that go along with that concurrent. 
I know it's more general, but you can walk into an operation and see if the opportunity is there for and with validity that the opportunity is there for pretty good improvement. Okay, let's take a quick break here. I want to let a couple of our strategists at Gorilla76 tell you about something pretty cool that we're doing right now for marketing folks in the manufacturing sector. Peyton and Brendan, take it away. So I'm Peyton Warren. And I'm Brendan Forrest. Twice a month, we host a live event called Industrial Marketing Live. Right now, we have a group of 50 plus industrial marketers from a variety of manufacturing organizations that meet up digitally to learn, ask questions, network, and get smarter. Every session has a designated topic. And one of our team members at Gorilla76 opens up by teaching for the first half hour or so. Topics have included how to do a better manufacturing webinar, getting started with paid social on LinkedIn, how to optimize your website for conversions, creating amazing video content, and so much more. After we break it down, we open it up to Q&A so we can help you apply all of this in your own businesses. This is pure value, no cost, no strings attached, no product or service pitches, just a 100% unadulterated learning experience. And on top of these live sessions, we've also opened up a Slack channel where attendees bounce ideas off each other and learn together between sessions. We're building a true community of manufacturing marketing professionals here. So if you or someone at your company has the word marketing in his or her job title, please consider telling them about it. They can visit industrialmarketinglive.com to register. We'd love to see you there. John, I think you've started sort of touching on this a bit, but I know your team at Tightline takes a very different approach to turning around a business than most private equity firms. What can you explain there for us? I don't mean to disparage them. I've got a lot of friends in the in the private equity world, some some very close friends with. But the best answer I can, and we'll, I'll give you, I'll give you more of an answer. But the best answer I can give you is that the pervasiveness of the success of the private equity world. By the way, the gentleman I mentioned before, William E. Simon, was actually as much as he understands productivity. I believe that you know his comment about productivity and the growth of productivity are 100% correct. He was actually the progenitor of the whole private equity world with the first leverage buyout of a company called Gibson Greeting Cards. In fact, a high school buddy of mine, uh, his father was president at the time, uh, which I found this out years afterwards, gentleman that runs private office for Bill Simon's partner and said, "My, my buddy's dad did a great job with it. But where I'm going with that is most private equity comes back and they do the financial machinations that are necessary because, you know, a lot of firms don't necessarily have that expertise. And then it's usually pulling costs out, eliminating costs where we go back and we go and eliminate the need for the costs. They will pull out labor hours. But if we get the obstacles of productivity out of the way, the output naturally increases and therefore you reduce the need for those hours as opposed to pulling the costs out, slamming operations together, making it try to work out with the people there. The other part that happens is by taking the costs out, you don't get the knock-on benefits that we were talking about before, the obstacles, the productivity, the reduction of them, the improvement in quality, lead time, et cetera. You're just pulling the, 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 the content out. You're taking overhead out. You're consolidating administrative operations with other plants. We are going back in and holistically, we believe, improving the overall operation for all stakeholders. The other thing, and I've seen some private equity do this, is they do some gain sharing with the operation. The way we'd like to do it 
is you go in and you do a before analysis, your cost of goods, you all the way down through your EBITDA, netting, your valuation. You really do your valuation process. We tend to focus mostly on, but not exclusively, to the cost of goods. And we think in the first year, an organization rife with the opportunity that you can take 10 to 12% of the cost of goods out while concurrently improving that competitive position. Doing those two things, that will drop immediately to the bottom line, to the EBITDA. Because it's now consistent and sustained, you should get an increase in the multiple for it, especially if it reflects in some revenue increase. Take that gain that we got in the cost of goods, put it over the new valuation, and now you share that with all the employees, certainly the ones who participated, you know, in the appropriate fashion on the new valuation with either real or synthetic equity. It's a gain you would not have had before without them. They're going to be integral in this process, continuing it going forward. They might as well be one of the stakeholders and your partners as you're going forward. So that is, at least we think it's, it's a little bit of a different approach on that end. It's stakeholder centric, not just shareholder centric. You know, you got the private equity guys really and their shareholders are the gains, are the, the, the ones that gain with it. Not even necessarily the sharehold, the other shareholders in the organization. They are there for the benefit of themselves and their own shareholders. We come back in, we do it our way, as we talked about before, with our approach, not our way, not that arrogant, our approach. I like to think I'm not that arrogant. Our approach benefits the customers, as we talked about, better external quality, shorter lead time, better on-time delivery. You can even be competitive in the pricing if you want it to be. Your employees win, as we talked about. Certainly your shareholders win. And the community and the environment ends up winning at the, in the end of the day because you're using less inputs for greater output. And now there's a lot of discussion. In fact, I, in fact, I don't even hear a lot of the discussion. But earlier on, six months ago, a lot of discussion about ESG benefits. Is it real? Is it not real? Is it greenwashing, et cetera? We'd like, like to think that this tight lines approach falls beautifully into ESG because you're getting, again, more and more consistent output with less units of input, less power, less raw materials. And eventually, as your margins improve, you can even start looking at alternative materials and giving your customer either uh, regenerative uh, plastics or bug-creative plastics, et cetera. And by giving it back to your employees, you have the environmental, you have the social. And if that's the way you end up governing, to me, a beautiful way to govern. No, I love it. You're touching on a lot of topics here that things I've talked about in this podcast recently. I had Mark Remmer, president of Green Dot Bioplastics, talking about the role of that and how maybe how it fits into productivity. We, we got into a little bit as well and the social element of it. Yeah, I, th- I feel like there's a, a lot of benefits surrounding what you're talking about right now that maybe I, I hadn't been considering. It's much easier if you are controlling and really driving your cost side of it and you're able to pull it out. It's much easier to introduce alternative materials, which at least of now tend to be a bit more expensive than comparable oil based. Okay. But, you know, if you're doing that and you can't raise the price, what a competitive position that gives you at the end of the day and doing it on that side. And then, of course, that volume coming through is only going to help your gross margin anyway. If you don't have to force the increases or bring it to your customer and you're able to absorb it and be able to take that impact out with those benefits, it's only going to drive it back to you anyway, in my opinion. John, is there a 
success story that you'd like to share from one of your clients around productivity? Let me share two with you. The main one is we talked about precision valve. I mean, we got to the opportunity with family dynamics, and this isn't a complaint at, at all. I mean, everybody can make the right decisions and you know go the way they needed to. But after my father passed, uh, you know, family decided some wanted out, some stayed, et cetera. And again, rightly so. We're doing great, but we took it. We took it in the chops because we were still fairly highly levered at that point in time to, to equalize it for everybody. We're about to sell some properties, but that ended up falling through. So we had to go through some of the restructuring work. But the greatest example was we went back into our own factory and we started demonstrating with the concept we were talking about. This is where I learned them from. That 10 to 12% improvement in reduction of the cost of goods. We were seeing molds and machinery that my father had 30 years ago that were running at about 50% efficiency. They had you know eight hours to start up. We made some changes without buying new equipment just in runner systems on molds that actually blew a lot of people away. Was, instead of the eight-hour startup, we were up and running within a minute. Full cavitation. Guys on the floor were high-fiving each other. We had a, another assembly machine where we, were, we couldn't have enough capacity because of the inefficiency we had to import from subsidiaries. By working with a small team that was familiar with it, but by addressing one problem after another, Instead of having to import and run seven days a week, three shifts, the woman that you know, first became part of this team came in and gave me a bag of rejected parts. She said, we need a new machine. I said, let's just, let's just give it two, three weeks and you know, see what happens. By the time we were done with this, she wouldn't let anyone else come near her machine unless you know, she validated them to begin with. We were down to running, instead of seven days a week, three shifts. We were down four days a week, two shifts. No overtime involved. She got to see her kid play uh, baseball on the weekend. And there was a myriad of issues like that that ended up rolling into precision valve. The other one was that a, a, a dear friend of mine was involved in, a, believe it or not, a wood delivery business. And they had the trucks, you know, which were going through. And we started laying out the whole process overall, the movement of the goods, the movement of information and the movement of money, just to see where all the gaps were, where the holes were and what happened. And they had a delivery system. They were only getting four to five deliveries a day. We had customer complaints, just the way the guys were handling the movement of the woods, the delivery of it, how it was stacked. We worked with the drivers and the whole logistics aspects of what we were doing. We went from needing to buy three or four new trucks because of the four deliveries a day, we were getting nine to 10 deliveries a day. The customer complaint issues disappeared. As an example, the guys were using wheelbarrows to bring wood in to someone's backyard in the wintertime as snow's melting. Mm -hmm. That one tight, heavy wheel would leave marks through the, uh, through the lawn. Customers were, were livid, and rightly so. Well, apparently there's a way to be able to do it with big balloon tires from my beer drinking days. What's the little dolly that, you know, it has, has a front that drops down, you put the keg on it, and you move it around the store. Well, you had that with a couple of bungee cords with big balloon tires that we could actually move more wood. Two guys were able to do it. So the delivery time was compressed. We started using, I looked out my window of my kitchen and I saw a UPS truck and I ran down to the guy and I said, hey, how in God's name do you know you're going from one house to another? Do you use something like a Waze? That's it. He goes, no, that's a great idea, though. We have a list in front of us you know, that we go that we have to go from one place to another. 
So I'm going, how the hell? So we go back, we end up using ways. You can put the next delivery in front. So we go from four to five deliveries a day to 10 to 11 a day with no customer complaints. We didn't have to buy the new trucks. It was a great success for Now, the principals, unfortunately, had a falling out. As it turned around, the guy that they ended up selling it to has kept all the work that they've done before, and it's uh, it's going very well. Well, John, what didn't I ask you about that you'd like to add to this conversation? Joe, I go back. Let's go back to that Charles Payne discussion I was seeing the other day. The woman, and I, I forget who she was, that he was interviewing, and they were showing the chart of you know the performance over the last 75 years. She said, you know, you know what the silver lining in all this is? And he, he looks at us, no, what? He said, the market is where the market is right now. We've got all the other issues. He goes, if the U.S. could just get back and focus on this productivity aspect, because it's sitting there waiting for us to go after it. Not only the market in itself, the valuation of each company, but as we were talking about before, the onshoring, you know, once we went to chase the cheap labor, and now you want to bring that business back here, because we learned a couple of things in the pandemic, that we need our supply chain here, but you go from a low-cost labor area to a high-cost, you're going to take it in the chops on the gross margin line. You do it on the productivity aspect of it. You know, the upside is still there for individual companies and the U.S. economy to take. I might, able, I might add to it that in my, also in my opinion, with the tremendous debt, right, wrong, or indifferent, however, how we achieved it to this point, the only way we're going to get out of this, or a big part of it, become a net exporter again. But no one's going to buy from us just because they like us. In fact, a lot of countries probably don't. So we've got to give them a more compelling argument to do that and uh, an enhanced competitive position and possible lower pricing because of margin expansion that we can share through productivity, to me, seems to be the way out of it. The thing I really want to share is it's, it's there for us to do if we commit ourselves to it. And for the benefit of not just a small group of shareholders, for the benefit for the stakeholders in the country, in my opinion. Well, John, you've given our listeners a lot to think about today. This was a really good conversation. I'd love to have you talk for a moment about how they can get in touch with you and where they can learn more about Tightline Advisors. Tightlinesadvisors.com is my website. And the other thing I might add on the website is, uh, Joe, I, I know you had a chance to take a look at it, but in there, the value accelerator, the performance accelerator. And if they can go in and do a before and after on their financial performance, now it rolls back all into operationally. You know, one of the things I, I do understand that it isn't going to work if it's not a benefit to them. They can put in their current numbers, let the calculator do its work, and it can show you an after after number on what the, the improvement in your in the valuation of the company can be with the with the tight lines approach. My cell number is nine one four two eight two. 3469. And as I said, the website is tightlinesadvisors.com. Beautiful. Well, John, really appreciate you doing this today. Joe, it's a, it was a pleasure. You were, you were very easy to talk to. I mean, I talk a lot anyway, but you were very easy to talk to. Thank you. Awesome. Well, well, thank you again, John. And as for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to The Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. 
If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.